Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Of all the teachings of the Bible, we are told the one that Christ considered most important. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know the meaning of life and how we are called to live. The message of the Bible, the greatest commandment, and the most important to Christ is the commandment for us to love God and love all. It was a couple weeks ago that I had a chance to get away for some time off and have some vacation. And I chose to spend part of that time going up to Colorado to be up in the mountains. It was nice to be able to be up there where it was a little cooler than it was back home in Oklahoma. To be able to be in a beautiful place and just to be able to have some time away. But one of the special things that was able to happen while I was away is that I proposed to Beth Armstrong. And she said yes. And we got engaged. It really was a special time for us to be able to be away and to relax and to spend time together in such a beautiful place, to be able to celebrate. You know, one of the things that she and I both love to do together is to play golf. And so we had decided that while we were going to be on our time away, that we were going to take several days to go and play golf together up in the mountains. And so we had booked some different tee times, and we showed up to one of the courses that whenever we got there, we got ready for our tee time that morning, we got warmed up, and we came to the first tee. We checked in with the starter, and he let us know there that we were going to be playing with two other guys that day. One of them was already there, and he introduced us. His name was Steve. Steve worked there for the golf course. He said, well, this will be perfect. You can show us around. We've never been here before. You can tell us what we need to know about the course. Well, the other guy, the fourth person in our group, wasn't there yet. It was now time for us to tee off, and so the starter said, well, why don't you guys go ahead and go, and maybe he's not going to show up. I started to walk up to the tee box, and all of a sudden this golf cart came around the corner, flying around the corner, and the guy jumped out, and he was going, I'm so sorry, I lost track of time, but I'm here now and I'm ready. Well, this was our fourth. I went over to introduce myself, and he said, my name is Steve. So, well, this ought to be easy. we got Steve and Steve. I can remember that. We got to visiting. We were getting ready to tee off, and the starter there told the two Steves, they each had their own golf cart, He said, well, you guys are going to have to join together into one cart. One of you is going to have to move your golf bag over. The first Steve, the one who worked there at the course, said, it's really not necessary. I'm just playing nine holes today. I'm going to leave after that. They can go on. We'll just take separate carts. And the starter said, I'm really sorry, but yesterday we actually ran out of golf carts because we had so many people here. 
so we're going to have to have you guys combine together because we're going to need your golf cart for somebody else. The second Steve, the one who showed up a little bit late, said, I don't know if that's a good idea for us to ride together. I didn't really think much about it. I thought he was just teasing. And so I walked up to the tee box. I hit my tee shot. We were off and going. It was finally about the sixth or seventh hole that the, the second Steve, the one who had showed up late, he and I were standing on the tee box together, just the two of us. We were waiting on the people in front of us to clear so that we could hit our tee shots. And as we were standing there, we just started talking about where I was from and what he did there. And as we started talking, he said, you know, I feel really bad for what I said there on the first tee box about not wanting him to ride my cart with me. He said, you have to understand that last night I was playing in a softball game. I play for a rec league, just a fun time to go play softball. And, and we were there last night and our team was getting beat bad. We were about to get run ruled. We needed one more run to continue playing the game and we were down to our last out. They said the other Steve who we're playing with today, I've seen him around here at the golf course before, but I've never really met him, didn't know him. But he was the umpire at our game last night. He said, we were down to our final out. We needed one more run to keep the game going. I stepped up to bat. It was my turn to hit. He said, the pitcher threw the ball in there, and I hit a great shot out into the outfield. And he said, I knew I had to score. I started rounding the bases. I came around third base. I saw the ball coming into home plate, and I knew it was going to be a close play at the plate. He said, as I came into home, I slid. The catcher grabbed the ball. He went to tag me, and he missed and I slid in under the tag, and I knew that I was safe. And all of a sudden, as I stood up, Steve, the umpire, called, You're out! He said, I jumped up, and I couldn't believe it. What do you mean I'm out? I was safe. He didn't touch me. He said, all my teammates were in the dugout. They all saw what happened. They started coming out of the dugout. They were hollering and screaming. He was safe. He didn't touch him. He's safe. He said, we were yelling and shouting all kinds of things, and it didn't matter. I was still out, and the game was over. So you can imagine my surprise when I showed up to the golf course today to find that I was going to be riding in the same cart as the guy that I'd just been yelling at the night before. He said, over these last six holes, I've been getting a visit with him, and what I found is he's actually a nice guy. I feel really bad for what I did. I just thought, how often does that happen in our world? How often do we see parents at Little League sports games yelling at umpires or referees or other parents? How often do we see incidents where drivers on the highway are yelling at one another and road, ra road rage incidents take place? How often do we see it in business or on social media that people who don't even know one another start resorting to name-calling and making assumptions about who they are or where they come from? Well, I wonder how often if we just took the time to get to know one another, we might treat each other a little differently. We might treat each other a little better. Because if we took the time to get to know one another, what we might find is they're actually really nice people. I think that's what Jesus was trying to teach his followers in our scripture lesson today. You go back and you read this story, and if you back up just a little bit, you'll remember that Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem, down in the south, back up to Galilee, up in the north. In order to get there, he's traveling through Samaria. 
And it's there as they're traveling along through Samaria that they come to the town of Sychar. Right outside of the town, there's a well that their ancestor Jacob had dug. And when Jesus gets there, he stops at the well in the middle of the day after a long and hot journey to get a drink of water and to rest. And while he's there at the well, he encounters this Samaritan woman. Now to understand this story, you really have to understand the background of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. It went back about 700 years before the time of Christ. That these two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, had hated one another. They had been enemies for 700 years. It really went back to about the year 722 BCE before the time of Jesus. Because it was in the year 722 that you had the Assyrian Empire. They were the dominant empire of that day. They were conquering all kinds of other nations and lands around them. And the Assyrians had now come and they had marched on the northern kingdom of Israel. At that time, Israel had split into two nations. You had the northern kingdom of Israel made up of ten of the tribes. And you had the southern kingdom of Judah made up of two of the tribes. Well, the Assyrians marched against the northern kingdom and they would conquer them. And when they conquered those ten tribes, they took anybody who was considered powerful or elite or wealthy, anybody who might be able to pose any kind of political threat to the Assyrians, they took them off into exile. Now, this is something that the Assyrians would often do with other nations that they conquered. They would take the powerful and the elite, and they would move them, and they would swap them with other lands that they had conquered. Anybody who was poor or powerless, well, they were allowed to stay where they were because they knew that they didn't pose any kind of threat. So by taking these different groups who spoke different languages and had different cultures and worshipped different gods and mixing them all up with each other, The Assyrians knew it really kept anybody from being able to rise up against them. And so that's what happened. There were people from foreign lands who had been brought there into the land that had been the northern kingdom of Israel. And they settled now in that place. Those who had already been there, the Jews who had already lived there, well, they started to become neighbors with these new foreigners. And they started to get to know them. They built communities and friendships Over time, they would begin to marry one another and start families and have children together. Now, those who were down in the southern kingdom of Judah, they saw what was happening up north. And they looked at them, this land now called Samaria. They said, how can you Samaritans do this? You know that the law says that you shouldn't marry foreigners. You shouldn't have children. Now you're worshiping other gods. You're not worshiping correctly. You have the wrong beliefs. You're not following the law. Well, those in the southern nation of Judah, the Jews there, started to look down on those in the north, the Samaritans. They started to look down on them as though they were less than. They weren't pure enough. Well, this would go on for several hundred years, the disdain and the fighting between the two of them. It was finally around the year 200 BCE that the Samaritans in the north said, we believe that the proper place to worship is here on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And so they built a temple there, a shrine, a place for people to come and gather to worship God. Well, the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah looked at that and they said, well, of course that's not the right place to worship. We all know that the proper place to worship God is here in Jerusalem at the temple. And the two of them began to argue about where's the proper place to worship and what's the proper way to worship God and what are the right beliefs. 
this would go on for a number of years, and it was about 75 years later, after that shrine was built at Mount Gerizim, that an army was raised up from the southern kingdom of Judah, and they began to march north against the Samaritans. They got to Mount Gerizim, and there they would destroy the shrine that had been built, because they believed that it was so wrong to worship in that place. You can imagine that this only continued to escalate and heighten the tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans that had been building for centuries now. It was about 150 years after that that our story takes place today with Jesus. Now whenever you read this story, if you back up a little bit in verse 4, John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get back to Galilee. Now it's important to know that whenever you read John's gospel and study John, Everything in John has multiple layers of meaning. There's always the literal meaning, the surface level meaning of here's what John actually says. But then underneath that, there's always spiritual meanings, theological meanings. When John said that Jesus had to go through Samaria, John wasn't saying that there were no other routes available to get back to Galilee from Jerusalem. We know, in fact, that there were other routes that were commonly used. Some people would travel over to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea. And there they would travel up along the sea until they got to Galilee and then travel back over to the Sea of Galilee. That was how many of the trade routes went, as they traveled by sea. Others who were Jewish, who were coming from Jerusalem and going back to Galilee, they took what was called the King's Highway. The King's Highway would take you across the Jordan River to the east, and then you would go north, And then once you got up close to Galilee, you would cross back over the Jordan River to be in Galilee. Now the whole point of going through that route was to avoid going through Samaria. The Jews and the Samaritans hated one another that much that they would go out of their way and travel a longer distance just to avoid ever having to come in contact with one another. So when John said that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, he wasn't saying there was no other road possible. We know that there was. It was often used. Now, I think what John is saying is that Jesus had to go that way in order to teach his followers an important lesson about what it means to intentionally encounter those that are supposed to be your enemies, about what it means to intentionally put yourself in a place where you have to get to know somebody who's different from you. When Jesus got to the well, it was about noon. Midday, the hottest part of the day. And suddenly this Samaritan woman comes up to the well. Now it wouldn't have been common to come to the well in the middle of the day when it was hot outside. Most people would have come to the well first thing in the morning while it was still cool. It was hard work to carry those jars to the well, fill them up with water, carry it all the way back into town to go back home. You'd want to do that while it was still cool outside. And then you would have your water for the rest of the day. Now, scholars have debated about why this woman came in the middle of the day when it was hot outside. We don't know exactly why she did. But most scholars assume that it's likely that she knew that nobody else would be there at that part of the day. And that's why she came then. She was trying to avoid being around anybody else. There was something that she was wanting to hide. Something that she was wanting to avoid others that she didn't want to have to confront. And so she chose to come when she believed that nobody else would be there. But when she got there, she found Jesus. Jesus begins to ask her for a drink of water. 
And then after they begin to talk about the well and where it came from, Jesus offers her this living water. That if you drink of this water that he has, you'll never be thirsty again. And they begin to talk about what that is. You know, that's all really a very important part of the story. But it's really a sermon for another day. What I want to focus on today is the part of the story that we read. Where Jesus shifts from talking about the water and the spiritual water to talking about her and her life. After they've talked about the water, Jesus says to her, go and get your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're correct in saying you have no husband. For I know that you've had five husbands. And now the man that you're with, well, he's not your husband. She confirms that what he said is correct by saying, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now what's interesting here is that scholars have debated about this woman and her life and her background. Why had she had five different husbands before? I mean, was she that hard to get along with that she had been divorced five different times? She was now living this immoral life with a man who wasn't her husband? That's not what the story says. Now, if you go back and read the story, Jesus just says, you've had five different husbands. He didn't say what happened to any of them. No, it's possible that she had been married five different times to different men. Each one of them had passed away and she would get remarried. And now she was with the sixth man who saw what happened to the five before him. He said, I love you, but I don't think I want the same fate as them. There was a law in those days that was known as the Leveret Law. It said that if a woman was married to a man and the man passed away, the law required that she would marry his brother. It's possible that she had been married to five different brothers and was now with the sixth. Maybe rather than living an immoral or loose life, maybe she was actually following the law and living a very righteous life. The reality is that the scriptures don't tell us the story behind it. And I think that's kind of the point. That for Jesus, it didn't really matter. He could have chosen to look at her with judgment and condemnation for her past. But instead that day he chose to look at her with eyes of compassion and grace. And he offered her an incredible gift that day. That would change not only her life, but the life of that entire village. This year at St. Luke's we've been focusing on our theme throughout the year. Love God, love all. As we go back and we look at the stories of Jesus and what Jesus was trying to teach his followers about what it looks like to love all, he never did that through judgment and condemnation. And the reality is, is that we live out that commandment of Christ to love one another. We don't do it through judgment and condemnation either. This morning, as we look at this story, and as we think about what it means to love God and love all, there's just two ideas that I want to share with us. First, I think it starts by us being willing to take the time to get to know one another. Because when we get to know each other, we begin to see each other in a new way. And when we see each other in a new way, we're more likely to treat one another in a different way. As Jesus came across this woman from Samaria, he would have had all kinds of reasons to cast judgment upon her. She was a Samaritan. She's a woman who'd been married five different times, who's now with a man who's not her husband. 
but that's not what he chose to do. He chose to take the time to get to know her, to talk to her about her life, and to offer her an incredible gift. You know, then I think about the story from the woman's perspective. How easy would it have been for her to cast judgment upon Jesus? She didn't know who he was. Here was this Jewish rabbi, this man coming through Samaria. Most Jews went around Samaria. Why had he chosen to come through Samaria? What were his intentions? Why was he here at midday, in the middle of the day, when nobody else would be there? Did he have something to hide? Was he trying to avoid being around other people? Why was he talking to her, this woman who's there at the well by herself? Now, she had all kinds of reasons to cast judgment about him or to come to her own conclusions, but she didn't. And because she didn't and was willing to take the time to sit and visit, they got to know one another. And her life was changed that day. If you read ahead just a little bit into verse 29, the woman goes back into the town and she begins to tell all the other townspeople, come and see this man who has told me everything I've ever done in life. It's this cry of joy that here is somebody who has come to know me. He has seen me, who I am. And he didn't cast judgment or condemnation. No, he knows me and he showed grace and love and compassion. That woman would go on to become one of the first evangelists who would spread the good news of who Jesus was to others. The entire town would come out and get to know Jesus. They would come to see who he was. No, it wasn't just her life that was changed that day, but the life of the entire village. Simply because two people took the time to sit down and to get to know one another. I think so much can be accomplished if we're just simply willing to take the time to learn about each other, to hear about each other's hopes and dreams, our backgrounds and our motivations and our inspiration, and we can come to deeper understandings of one another. It doesn't mean that we will always agree. It doesn't solve all the problems that we will always have. But when we begin to have a deeper understanding of who we are, where we come from, and what we believe, well, we can gain a greater sense of how to love one another. You know, when I was in college, I went to school at Oklahoma City University. And I took a class there in executive leadership. It was a great class. And as part of the class, we were assigned two books to read that were going to be our textbooks for the class. The first book was the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Many of you may be familiar with that book. The second book was a book called It's Your Ship by Captain Michael Abershoff. Captain Abershoff wrote this book about his experience as the commanding officer of the USS Benfold. When Captain Abershoff was given command of the Benfold, it was known as the worst ship in the Navy. In all of the different scores and any way that you measured it, battle preparedness, skills test, it didn't matter. They always came in dead last of all the ships in the Naval fleet. Well, that was the ship that Captain Abershoff was given command of. He quickly found out that the crew that was assigned to the Benfold well, they were the ones that nobody else wanted. The ones that everybody else looked at and said they don't have enough skills. They're not smart enough. They're not driven enough. They cause too many problems. They were sent to the binfold. And that was now the crew that he had to command. 
Well, when Captain Abershoff took over command, he decided that being last in the Navy, being the worst ship in the Navy, was not going to be okay anymore. They were going to begin to change the standards and turn this around. And he decided that if he was going to be able to do that, that one of the important things he needed to do was to get to know his crew. And so he did something that most Navy captains don't do. He began to schedule appointments to sit down one-on-one with every member of his crew, more than 1,500 of them. He wanted to get to know them. He began to sit down with them and to hear their stories. He wanted to learn from them. Why did you join the Navy? What were your hopes and your dreams as being part of the Navy? What are your goals after you're done with the Navy? He started to talk with them and to hear their stories, to hear their hopes and their dreams, and to learn about their lives. What he discovered is that for many of the sailors on board his ship, they joined the Navy because they had no other way to pay for college. They knew that if they came and served in the military and did their time, they could get their GI Bill and go back to school and get their education. It was their only chance to be able to pay for school. He heard from others who had gotten on the ship and joined the Navy because they were trying to escape from something in their past. They were trying to escape from gangs and violence. They were trying to escape from drugs and abuse. They were trying to escape from problems at home. And so the Navy was a way out for them. He came across other sailors who really wanted to be able to go to college, but had been told their entire lives by teachers and parents and counselors, you're not smart enough to go to college. You're not good enough. You're not college material. These were sailors that had never even taken the SATs or ACTs, the college entrance exams, because they had been told all their lives that it was pointless. They weren't college material. After hearing these stories and getting to know these young sailors, Captain Abershoff decided he wasn't going to settle for that. These young sailors who had dreams of going off to college, who had just never taken the SATs, he thought, we can do something about that. So he made arrangements to have an SAT test administrator flown from the United States to the USS Benfold just off the coast of Iraq. He had 45 sailors that they brought together who wanted to take the SAT. They came that day, they sat down, they took their tests, they sent them off to be scored, and when they got the results back, it was incredible. Almost every single one of them had a high enough score to be able to go to college. One of the young ladies had a high enough score that she could get into any Ivy League school that she wanted to get into. Forty-five young sailors that had been told their entire lives, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not college material. And almost every single one of them had a high enough score to be able to go to college. Well, all of a sudden, this began to set things in motion. And more and more sailors said, well, I want to continue my education. I want to go and get a college degree. And this was back in the 1990s, before the days of online courses like what we have today. And so they had to figure out, how can we help these people get an education and start to get college credits? Well, they found a program where you could order these CD-ROMs. Now, if you don't know what a CD-ROM is, ask your parents after the service. You could buy these CD-ROMs and you could plug it in and then you could watch a lecture or take a lesson on whatever different topic you were wanting to take for a college course. You would then be assigned to write a paper or take a test. They would send it off to a professor who would grade it, and in that way, you could start to gain college credits. 
Well, more and more of these young sailors on board the ship started participating in this program that Captain Abershoff wanted to, uh, to offer to them. But he said it didn't stop there. Then he had other sailors saying, well, you know, I don't necessarily need a college degree, but I would like to learn more about math. And so they would start taking math courses or reading courses or science courses. But then he said others that didn't really have as much of a drive or uh, wanted to go to college, they said, well, I'd like to learn more about my job in the Navy. And I want to take more classes on skills that I need to be better at my job. He said this started to just become contagious across the entire ship. That everybody was wanting to raise their knowledge. Everybody was wanting to raise their skill set. Everybody was wanting to reach greater potential. He said before they knew it, everybody was achieving so much and learning so much that they all became better at their jobs on board the ship. And then they started to take these tests as a ship where they had always been last in the Navy. And suddenly now they were scoring the best of all the ships in the Navy. They were scoring so high that it totally forced the Navy to redo the way that they did their tests, the way that they did their trainings for other ships. And it all started because one man took the time to sit down and listen, to care about people to listen to their stories and their backgrounds. And when he took the time to get to know them, he began to see something in them that others hadn't seen before, a greater potential and possibilities. It changed not only their lives, it changed the life of the ship. They began to spread to other ships and all across the Navy. And when one person is willing to sit down and take the time to get to know somebody else, and to see them differently, and to treat them differently, the ripple effects of that begin to go out into the world far beyond anything that we could imagine. When we take the time to get to know one another, we learn more and more how to love one another. And so second, be willing to show grace to each other. Whether we choose to show grace and compassion and love or whether we choose to show judgment and condemnation, either way, it's a choice that we get to make. Time and time again, Jesus made the choice to show love and compassion and grace. You know, it was a few years ago, I, I read about a hospital in Israel up in the far northwestern part of the Galilee. It's called the Western Galilee Hospital of Nahariya. It serves up there on the border of Israel, just a few miles away from Lebanon. It's also close to the area of Syria and Jordan. It's in a part of the country of Israel where the land has been fought over for centuries. It's a very diverse area. People live in this area who are Israeli Jews, as well as Israeli Muslims, Christians, Palestinians. It's a very diverse area around this hospital and the staff of the hospital really reflects the diversity of the area. You have doctors and staff members and administrators who come from all these different backgrounds. Well, it was back in 2011 that you may remember that the civil war in Syria began to break out. The violence was just a few miles away from them across the border in Syria. It was by a couple of years later in 2013 that the, the violence was really being ramped up to a new level in this civil war. The administrators of the hospital began to look at what was going on right across the border there, there at their neighbors. 
And they said, we can't just sit back and do nothing while we watch so many people who are injured, wounded, killed in battle. We have to do something. They made the decision to purchase some ambulances that were unmarked. They then began to take those ambulances across the border into Syria into the battle zones. And they would find people who had been hurt, who had been wounded by the battles, and they would pick them up and carry them back across the border. Now these ambulances had to be unmarked because if anybody knew that they were Israeli, they would automatically become a target. That was the enemy. And so they took these ambulances across the border on these dangerous missions to pick up wounded people and bring them back to the hospital and to begin to treat them for their wounds. They said when these people came to the hospital, we didn't know whether they were ISIS fighters or whether they were part of the Syrian army or whether they were just civilians caught as casualties in war. But it didn't matter. We treated them all the same. They said that as they started to bring these people in from Syria, one of the things that they discovered is that the diet there at the hospital was hard for many of these Syrian people. You see, there at the hospital, it was a kosher kitchen. They served all kosher food. Many of the Syrians weren't used to that kind of a diet. And so as they were trying to heal and recover in the hospital, it was especially difficult on them because their, their stomachs weren't used to this kind of food. Well, as I mentioned, the hospital staff was very diverse. Many of them were not Jewish. They didn't have a kosher diet at home. They knew that they couldn't start cooking non-kosher food in the kitchen there at the hospital. And so these staff members took it upon themselves to start cooking other types of food in their homes and then bringing it up there to the hospitals to be able to feed these patients. The communities around the hospital, they heard about what was going on. They began to take it upon themselves to go and collect toys and clothes and food so that every Syrian who was treated at the hospital and taken back across the border would go home with a care package. The doctors there in the hospital, many of them spoke Hebrew. And of course, many of these Syrians who were coming across to the hospital to be served spoke Arabic. They found that it became difficult for them to communicate with one another. And it was difficult to treat them. And so these doctors took it upon themselves to start to learn Arabic so that they could break down those barriers and offer better care and treatment. There was one young man named Raji who was 23 years old had been wounded in a battle. He was brought there to the hospital, had serious wounds. He was taken into surgery. The doctor who performed the surgery literally saved his life. When Raji was released from the hospital and was allowed to go back to Syria, the doctor was being interviewed and asked about it. And he said, whether we save one man or whether we save 50 lives or 1,500 lives, all of them will be able to go back home and have children and grandchildren. And one day when their children or grandchildren ask them about their scars, they'll be able to tell them about how their Israeli enemies saved their life. And maybe one day, we won't have to be enemies anymore. As I heard these stories about what this hospital had done, I just kept thinking about how they didn't have to buy those ambulances. They didn't have to take those dangerous trips over into Syria to find people who needed help. They didn't have to treat more than 3,000 people in a five-year period. They didn't have to feed them food that they had made at home. They didn't have to put together care packages for them. 
They didn't have to learn a different language. But these were all choices that they made every single day to show grace and compassion rather than judgment and condemnation upon those who were supposed to be their enemies. Every day we're going to come across other people in our path and we get to choose how we will treat them. We get to choose to take the time to get to know them, to hear their stories, their hopes and their dreams and their motivations. We get to choose to look on them with eyes of grace and compassion. And when we choose to do that, we learn more and more what it means to love God and to love all. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite each of us to lift up our own silent prayers. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.